good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you for listening to the ministry of Let the Bible Speak. This message was preached during a recent visit to the Orlando Free Presbyterian Church. It was an attempt to encourage the Lord's people as they seek to labour for the Lord. I trust it will be a blessing to your soul today. Well, please turn tonight in your copies of the Word of God to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'd like to read just the last three verses of the chapter. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, reading from the verse number 14. 1 Timothy 3 and the verse 14, the Word of God says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God is manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, and seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. I thought tonight as we would come together to pray that it would be beneficial to consider the, the relationship of the local church and the exercise of prayer. And very often we consider prayer to be a personal matter. It is something we do individually, perhaps within the privacy of our own closet. But in the Bible, and in the New Testament terms particularly, there is a great emphasis placed upon the corporate duty of prayer, of the importance of God's people together coming to seek the face of their God. We see it even in the, in the early church as they were told to tarry in Jerusalem. We don't find the believers waiting in their own homes, but they are coming together in that upper room and they are seeking the face of God in that upper room, crying out for the promised gift of the Spirit of God. But they're doing so in a united sense. The words one accord, one spirit, one mind are used to describe those early seasons of prayer. And so right at the very beginning of the, the book of Acts, we see the church coming together corporately to seek the face of God. We see that upper room band of disciples then organizing itself into various churches in various places. And so we have the description in Acts chapter 12 as Peter's in prison, that the prayer is made for him of the church. So now we find that that band of believers who come in a united sense can simply be placed in that group called the church. The local church praying for the apostle. And you know the story there, they don't believe when that prayer is answered and Rhoda goes to the door and is wondering who, who's at the door and of course it's Peter and God has been pleased to answer the prayer not of individuals but of the church and therefore we as we pray together as a corporate band this evening it is helpful that we understand something about the nature of Christ's church and to see how that understanding impacts our prayer life as a church we, we should not divorce the, subject, the study of ecclesiology from the subject of prayer, the subject of the doctrine of the church from the subject of the church at prayer. 
And so in this verses of Scripture, and we're going to look particularly at verse number 15, in this verse we, we see a description and terms used regarding the church. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful event in God's providence that has given us this verse. Paul had hoped to arrive at Ephesus sooner than he's going to come eventually. But you have here in verse 14, these things rightly unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, he's then writing this letter that they would know how to behave themselves in the house of God, the church of the living God. These pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, are, are written to give instruction uh, to God's servants and through God's servants to the church so they would know how to conduct themselves properly in what is termed the house of God. It is marked again that this letter carries divine authority. Paul has the authority of the apostle. He's the one who's going to give instruction as they should behave themselves in the house of God. And though he is not there in person, his word carries this divine apostolic authority. And so we have this word in our own hands today, and it carries that same apostolic authority. Church conduct is a very important matter. We don't simply behave in the church as we please. There are certain things that we do and don't do in the church of Christ. And as Paul, as Paul gives this instruction, he does so counter, he does so calling the church the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Please mark this carefully. He is writing to Timothy, who at this time has the oversight of a local church in Ephesus. Paul is calling a local church body the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now we might read that and think he's referring to the what we might call the church universal. But here, here Paul is showing us the nature of a local church and their identity in the sight of God. And that's the first thing I want to notice with you uh, this evening. That is the identity of the church in the terms that Paul uses. How does Paul identify the church? What, what language does he use? Well, he calls it the house of God. And he calls it the church of the living God. This word house can refer to a household. It's actually used that way in a number of places, but actually in the immediate context. Look at verse number 4 of chapter 3. One that ruleth well his own house. Here, of course, it's not referring to the house as a, as a building. It's, it's referring to the inhabitants of the house. A, a group of people under this term, house. It's used the same in verse number 5. For if a man know not how to rule his own house... How shall he take care of the church of God? The house. The church is a family. It's the family of God. That identity, of course, governs our conduct. What we are as a church governs how we behave as a church. Here we are a, a community. A community under God. God is our father. Christ is our elder brother. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. It is the house. It is also referred to as the church. 
The word there is, again, known to most of you, I'd imagine. It is the word ecclesia, uh, the word that we get our word ecclesiology from, the study of the doctrine of the church. The word itself is a, an interesting word in its origin. It speaks of being called out. The church are the called out ones. It's also, of course, a reference to assembly. It's used in uh, Acts chapter 19 regarding a crowd, a riotous crowd in Ephesus. And the assembly is mentioned there. And that's the word ecclesia. So what you see is that the church that Paul is referring to here, it's the family of God. It's a, a group of those who have been called out and they've been called out to be called out together and therefore to assemble together. Now the sense of calling, of course, refers to conversion. You know, the church is a converted company. There are those who can be part of church gatherings, but the church, as Paul sees it here, the house of God, is only made up of those who have been called out of darkness into light. In the language of 1 Peter 2, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is that sense of calling, a separation from the world, from the authority of Satan, separation from sin, into the company of God's people. That's all in view in this word, Ecclesia, called out of sin, and as individuals are personally born again, and they're called out, then, then Christ places them into an assembly. And they leave the world and they enter the assembly of the church. And so what is the church in essence? Well, let, let me give it to you in one sentence. The New Testament church is a family gathering. That's what it is. It's a family gathering. We assemble together as a family. Now, of course, the fall... The fall of man into sin greatly affects our view of family. But in biblical terms, if we were to think of family, we should be thinking of mutual care and compassion and mutual interest. Paul will speak to the church in Galatia and encourage the church to bear one another's burdens. The church is to pray for one another. John will pray for his friend in 3 John that he may prosper and be in health even as his soul prospers. This is a, a family gathering. There ought to be care and compassion and interest. It does my heart good to receive the emails that are sent out that I, I understand that there's a desire that you're, you're all informed of the mutual prayer needs. There's an understanding of this, this small congregation but it's a congregation that has a family atmosphere as you have that mutual concern and burden, the one for the other. And as a family, there is a desire for family gatherings. The church, a company of the redeemed, they, they do not want to live alone and live isolated lives. There is a desire for assembly. You, you think of Hebrews chapter 10. Turn there quickly. Hebrews chapter 10. And the verse number 25, Paul again writing to a church, he will tell them in the verse number 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together 
as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Note, note that Paul is clear, or sorry, the Paul here in Hebrews 10 is, is very clear regarding the necessity of God's people to assemble together. And note what he says in the previous verse. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. The church is a place for the family to come together to encourage each other. Sometimes preachers, in a misguided sense, they believe that it's, it's up to the preacher to make sure that, that, that God's people all keep on pressing on. I, I would really struggle with that burden. Because I understand my own weaknesses, my own inability to, to use the right words. And so I am so thankful that in the word of God, there is a burden placed upon all of you to encourage each other. And to exhort each other to keep on pressing on. That you all have the task to go across from aisle to aisle to pew to pew. And to provoke each other by word and example unto love and to good works. A preacher is a great blessing and a gift to a church. But the absence of a preacher does not mean that you do not have the opportunity to provoke one another. It's a family here. The church has its identity of a family of God called out of the word into community of care and compassion. And so it affects our prayer lives as you pray for one another. In your weaknesses and your discouragements, you encourage each other as you pray for one another. And of course, it affects the very content of your prayers. There will be a sense of praying with a desire that God's people will be strengthened in the faith. So keep these things in mind. How we view the church has a tremendous impact upon our prayer meetings. So you've got the identity of the church there. You've also got the dignity of the church. Paul uses terms that give a very elevated view of the church. Uh, Tragically, the church is held in a very low esteem by so many. You can take it or leave it. It's not really a major part of the the life of the the believer. It's just something that maybe is a little bonus. But here, here we see Paul has the highest view of the local church. Note, he refers to it as something built by God that belongs to God. It's the house of God. A house, of course, can speak of something that's being constructed. Even as a family is built, unless the Lord builds the house, and the psalmist says. There's a, a building of the house together. We are living stones. And God is building together those living stones upon the cornerstone that is Christ Jesus. His blood is shed. Not to simply save individuals, but to gather together a church, a building for God. God's at work in building this church. And God understands this church belongs to him. It is the church, listen, of the living God. In Paul's times, in Ephesus, there was a temple to Diana. It was the temple of Diana. And here Paul is saying, no, 
Don't think about the pagan gods, but think about the one true and living God. And understand that you as a church, you're God's temple. I want to show you that very briefly. The temple metaphor for the the New Testament church, we often apply it to the individual. You are the temple of God individually. But it's actually used by Paul back in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn there, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and you'll see there that it's used of the local church again. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in the verse number 16. Now, this is a very interesting portion in terms of context. Dealing with the, the matter of how the church is building and how the church grows. And there are two, two different metaphors used. One of the husbandman, one of the, if you like, the agricultural metaphor, and the other the architectural metaphor. One referring to the field and the other referring to a building being built upon a foundation. And the warning comes from the apostle that every man must be careful how he builds. And I believe the application there is to the, uh, to the local church minister. They've got to be careful that they, they build upon Christ properly. And so in the context of local church life, Paul then says in verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? And I'm convinced he's referring to the local church. Because the next verse is, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And he's, he's just given the warning about men building badly upon the foundation. And so the context would necessitate the view that the local church is referred to as the temple of God. Paul he used the same term in his second epistle to Corinth. You look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and the verse number 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore come ye out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. Dealing with the issue of church life. Dealing with the issue of a, a local church here in Corinth. And yet referring to it as, as the temple of God. The church. Not just the church universal. I, not just a church of all men who have ever been saved. But rather a local body. Even with all the sins of Corinth, or a local body with all the sins of Ephesus, Paul is happy to refer to him as the temple of God, or as the church that belongs to the living God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul would say, we are built together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Built by God. Belonging to God. What is the church? First of all, what do we see? It's a family gathering. And secondly, we see here the dignity of the church made by God for God. Made by God so that God would indwell his church. And not simply our lives individually, but a local expression of that here in Orlando. What a blessing. What dignity. You are praying to God 
for the church, the church that he is building and the church that belongs to him. Do you not think that God cares for his building? Do you not believe that God has an interest in this place? And as we plead before his throne, we have the assurance that he's an interest in those prayers. What an encouragement. You take those simple words, Lord, bless this church. And you think in your mind, as I pray that simple prayer, I'm praying to the God who's building his church, a church that belongs to God. How important it is that our desire is that this local body will be a place where God is present. This is the temple of God, the church of God, a place where God is in the midst. What a prayer that is to offer. Lord, be present in our midst every time these doors are open. May the God of heaven be here. He is the living God. He's not a false God. He's not a statue upon a wall. He's the one true and living God who really and truly can be present amongst his people. And how does he do that? His presence is known when his voice is heard. That's what happens, isn't it? You think of, you know, perhaps your, your childhood or perhaps even in the, in the present time. Uh, the man of the house goes out to work. And they're away. They're away for a season at work and they come home. And the door is opened. And how is their presence known? I'm home. And the voice is heard. And as the voice is heard, so the presence is known. I don't want you to have... And some mystical view of God coming in a, in a way that we just feel. No, God is present when his word is heard. And when his voice is revealed through his word, then we know God is in the midst. And as we, as we delight in that presence, so then we rejoice in the Lord as a local church. Do you, do you see how important it is to understand the doctrine of the church? The identity? Day of the church. It is the family gathering, the dignity of the church, belonging to God and built by God. And then also finally, the responsibility of the church. It is referred to as the pillar and ground of the truth. The truth. Paul believes in absolute truth. There is such a thing as a body of doctrine that is the truth. The truth concerning redemption. The truth regarding God and salvation. There is truth. And it is the church's responsibility to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Now this, this is not a proof text for Roman Catholic dogma regarding the church. Uh, of course they would suggest that truth comes from the church. The church defines the truth by people, decree, and tradition. But rather the, the terms here refer to a good Protestant understanding of the church. The word pillar is something that gave grandeur to the building. It beautified the building. And you think back to your, your, your days of studying ancient history and you think of the old architecture of the Greek world and you think of the, the pillars that were used for those, those temples. They were given there for, for grandeur and to beautify the building. They had a function of support, of course, and we'll, we'll see that in a minute or two. But the church is to present the truth of God in a manner that is glorious to behold. 
The church also has the task of being the ground of the truth. And again, the word here speaks of a buttress, a prop or a support, not the foundation. We think of ground as something we stand upon. Here, this word ground in the original, it speaks of a, a, a prop, a buttress used to, to support a wall or, or some structure like that. So referring to the foundation, that, that is Christ and Christ alone. Apostolic doctor, of course, being the, the foundation that, that Christ is, is manifested in the word. But the, the church then has the ongoing responsibility to support the truth. Simple terms. The church is to defend the truth and to display the truth. It's the responsibility of the church. We are all to contend earnestly for the faith, the truth, once and for all delivered to the saints. That is the ongoing responsibility of the church. And what a task it is that we make the truth of Christ beautiful to behold. And that we would defend the truth of Christ from every onslaught of error. That truth that is revealed to us in verse number 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And here we see the doctrine of Christ at the very heart of truth. Christ is the, the subject of all the word of God. He comes in the flesh. He lives in this world by the Spirit. He's beheld by the angels. He's proclaimed in the Gentiles. He's trusted in the world. He's received it in the glory. It's all a summary of the doctrine of Christ Jesus. Now, we don't have time to explain that summary tonight. But in simple terms, may I remind you that as we pray for the church here, we must pray for the church and its responsibility as revealed by God. You go out and around this area and you will see many, many manifestations of unbiblical churches functioning in a way according to man's inventions. What's the church for? To be the pillar and ground of the truth. To display and defend the truth of Christ. That's what the church is for. And so as we pray for the church and for missionaries and whatever else may come across, may it be at the very core of our prayers that we understand this is what the church is for. The doctrine of the church has a tremendous impact upon our prayers. It gives us support and encouragement. We know, we know what we're doing here together. We know how God views us when we come together and we understand what are the things that ought to drive us as we get upon our knees in the presence of God. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.